Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus 27. We're at the final chapter of Leviticus. And so we're concluding our series today to live in the presence of God. And this book has been about living in the presence of God. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He redeemed them. He formed them into a nation. He brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them his law, his instructions for how to live in his presence. And this entire book has taken place at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's all about how to live in God's presence. So before we jump into the text this morning, let's go ahead and do a quick review of what we've seen so far in this book. In the first five chapters, we saw instructions for offerings that were given. And then in the next couple of chapters, there were instructions for the priests. In chapter 9, the operations of the tabernacle actually began. So we saw the the sacrifices begin. We see God's presence comes in glory. We see the response of the people as they worship in reverence and in awe. And everything seems like it is now the way it's supposed to be. God has given this design. And now they're living it out. But it's very short-lived because in the next chapter, chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire into the tabernacle. And God responds by consuming them instead of the sacrifice. And so now there's the problem of not only has sin entered the tabernacle, but death as well. So we have sin and we have its consequence, death that have both entered the tabernacle. And what is going to be done about it now that this uncleanness is there? And so God, first of all, gives five chapters of instructions about clean and unclean. He details for us what it looks like when you're coming into his presence the way that he has asked and what unclean looks like as well. And those things do not line up with necessarily sin or not sin, but they do detail how God's people are to be living before him. And then we come to chapter 16, which is really the heart or the center of the book. And it's the day of atonement. And the way the text reads, this takes place on the very same day that Nadab and Abihu came into this tabernacle with strange fire and were killed. And the day of atonement is God's answer of how he's going to deal with the sin and the death and the uncleanness. And so we see the sacrifice that's made of the two goats and the blood is brought into the Holy of Holies and the other goat carries the sins symbolically away from the people. And the the sins of Nadab and Abihu and the sins of all of the people are atoned for. And it's like a great kind of restart. And then God gives, now that atonement has been made, here's the holiness code. Here's how you are to live before me. And so he he gives all of these explanations of kind of case law that helps us to understand what it looks like to follow his law and to live as he's designed. Then when we come down to chapter 25, we have kind of a second climax to the book, and that is the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, we have the release from debt. We have freedom that is given and the land is restored and everything kind of goes back to the way God had designed at the start. 
And then the last time we looked at chapter 26 and it was obedience and disobedience. And if the people obey, there will be blessing. And if they disobey, there will be punishment. So now that God has laid out for us what holy living looks like and what it means to come into his presence and to live before him and to, 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 to receive the blessing of being in his presence, now we have this call to obey, to make that right choice and the consequences if we don't. And then in chapter 27, where we land today, we have vows and consecration. It's a fitting end to the chapter. And so today we're going to be looking at vows and redemption in Leviticus 27. In other words, after this entire book has laid out for us what it looks like to live in the presence of God, we now have instructions regarding the people's commitment to live in God's presence. When they commit something to God, when they make a vow, what exactly does that mean? And does God take vows seriously? Ecclesiastes 5 verses 4 and 5 tells us, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So God takes vows very seriously. And this chapter fits in the flow of the book of Leviticus in two ways. Number one, when vows are redeemed, the money belongs to the tabernacle. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes there was a reason to redeem the vow, to buy it back. So for example, let's say you have um, a second donkey and you really only need one. And rather than selling the donkey, you choose to take the donkey and to dedicate it to the Lord and to give it to the work of the tabernacle. And so you vow the donkey to the Lord and you give it to the tabernacle. And then your other donkey dies. Well, now you need a donkey and you maybe, you already know this one and you want to use this one that you have vowed. Well, you can buy it back. So the value of the vow, plus a little more, you can pay and take that vow back. That's called redeeming your vow. And that money then is used for the operation of the tabernacle. So in a book that is laying out for us all the functions of the tabernacle, it's fitting that we would see one of the ways that the tabernacle operation is funded. But second, when the people have the desire to live in God's presence and to live holy lives as he has laid out for them, oftentimes, if it's out of devotion to God or love to God, maybe it's because you've sinned and you've repented of that sin and you've made restitution and you want to express uh, to God your commitment to follow him or maybe it's out of gratitude for the forgiveness that he has shown to you or the grace that he's shown to you you might make a vow which is kind of it's beyond your tithes and offerings it's a it's a dedication of something to the Lord and so it's fitting here at the end of the book where God has laid out for us what it takes to live in his presence and to live holy lives that this discussion of vows, of consecration, of dedication to the Lord is what brings this book to a close. It kind of raises the question for each of us. As we've considered the book of Leviticus, what is our response? Do we just 
hear this each Sunday and it just kind of trickles on through and maybe some of it sticks, but it doesn't make a difference? Or do, do we actually dedicate ourselves to the Lord? Do we consecrate ourselves to him? Do we have a desire to live holy lives because of what we've seen in God's word? Well, we're going to look at this chapter in three parts this morning. The first one, the first 13 verses is vows regarding living things. So follow along with me as I read and we'll just comment on it a little bit as we go. Chapter 27 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. So before I continue, let me just comment on those verses for a minute. So the first thing to note is that the reason that specific valuations are being given to various kinds of people here, when the text speaks of paying the valuation, that means that the person who was dedicated or vowed is being redeemed, is being bought back. It doesn't mean that the person who made the vow is no longer keeping their vow or keeping their promise to the Lord. But for some reason, they want to redeem or buy back the specific thing, in this case, a person that had been dedicated to the Lord. For example, like we said before, if they dedicated a donkey to the Lord, but then later decided they wanted to retain the donkey to work their fields, they had the option to buy back the donkey with certain conditions on it. So they still fulfilled their promise, but they did it with money rather than with the thing that was vowed. Now, when it comes to people, our natural instinct, especially living in the day and age that we do, is to object. All people are created equal. How can God give different valuations to different people? Why do men have one valuation and women have another valuation? Why do men or women in the prime of their life have one valuation and those on the other end, whether it's the older or the younger end of the spectrum, don't have the same valuation? Well, we need to realize that the valuation here is based on physical strength and qualification for the job, the thing they're being dedicated to, not based on their dignity or worth as an individual. Most of us have no problem seeing like a common sense distinction here when we put this, if you translate it into the arena of sports. Now, granted, our culture is going nutty and can't keep that straight in their mind, but there is a common sense difference here that we understand, right? Men play against men 
and women play against women. Boys play against boys and girls play against girls because men and women are different and boys and girls are different. There are differences in the way that God made us, so there are distinctions in sports. That's why when we look at the upcoming Olympics and we see that New Zealand is sending a man who thinks he's a woman to compete in women's weightlifting, we innately know that's not right. Now, translate that idea into the realm of vows made to the Lord. There are certain things that a male dedicated to the Lord can do, which a woman dedicated to the Lord cannot do. Think, for example, of the service of the Levites in the tabernacle. <clears throat> there are certain things that God has reserved to men because of the way that he's designed the relationships of men and women and families and all of that. There's also actually a physical distinction when you think of the physical work of lifting animal carcasses in the tabernacle and having to do that kind of work. So there's a distinction there that's being made. But it's not a distinction. It's not a statement about dignity or worth. <clears throat> it's interesting to think about kind of how we have gotten to where we are in our culture. Um, I've been reading a book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he's saying, how did we get to the point where we think about ourselves the way we do? And he, he kind of uh, interacts with a number of different authors. And one of those authors is a man named Philip Reef. And he talks about cultural death works. And what he means by death works is when there are concerted efforts in a culture to undermine the cultural values, to destroy that culture from the inside out, so to speak, to overthrow the, the things that are considered good and beautiful and true. One of the cultural means, one of the things that happens is the creation of death works. And by that, he means any cultural expression, whether it's a piece of art or drama, or music, in our day and age, TV and movies, things like that, that undermine the traditional value structure. So, for instance, it becomes a cultural norm to think of people who have traditional values as, if I could use this word, deplorables. Right? Why, is, why is that now a normal way of thinking? There's a certain category of people who hold to traditional values that are scorned. That's part of the effort to undermine the traditional values. I think one prime example of this is almost every sitcom that has been made from the 90s up through today and the way that they portray fathers. They portray fathers as bumbling idiots who need to either be rescued or worked around or whatever the case may be. That's a death work. That's a cultural undermining of a value that God has given and says is something good and true and beautiful. And so you and I need to realize just how much we've been impacted by that. And when we read something like this passage in Leviticus and we bump up against this and we have this kind of innate kind of objection to it where we don't like that, we, we should be asking ourselves why. 
And the answer, frankly, is we are so shaped by our culture and the death works that have been introduced into our culture that have undermined biblical truths and values. It's why being here on Sunday morning is important. You need to hear God's word. I need to hear God's word. We need to understand that what God says is the good and the true and the beautiful. It's how he's designed the world to work. It's the best way. And we need to shake ourselves of the cultural strangleholds that are on us of thinking wrongly about these things. The last five minutes was a sidebar, not in my notes. That was for free. All right, continue. Notice also, before we move on from these verses though, verse eight, God makes allowances for the poor, but notice how he does it. They may not need to pay the full price, but there is still a cost. The poor are not exempted from the responsibility to keep the vow. God is at the same time compassionate. He makes allowances for them and just, he upholds the vow. So God is, is willing, he says, the priests can, can look at the, the life of this person and what they own and what they have and what, they, what means they have to pay the vow and he can reduce the amount that they need to pay. But there still is a cost. And God upholds this perfect balance that we see in his character of compassion and justice. Pick it up with me in verse nine. <clears throat> if the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good or bad, or bad for good. And if he does in fact substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so if someone vows a clean animal, that animal is going to be offered as a sacrifice and it can't be exchanged or substituted. <clears throat> you can't, in the, in the moment that you feel this compulsion to make a vow to the Lord and you vow to the Lord your best lamb and you bring that lamb to the Lord and, and you give it at the tabernacle and then you go home and you start reconsidering and you say maybe I should keep that one and I should give this other one and you take that one back and try to substitute it <clears throat> the Lord says no if you try to substitute then they're both given why God holds vows very seriously. And it's as if, as soon as that animal is given, it's as good as dead. It's as good as sacrificed. And that sacrifice can't be undone. But if someone vows an unclean animal, which is not, this is not a criticism of that, you're, <clears throat> that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. If you vow an unclean animal, it's not going to be given as a sacrifice because it's unclean, but it still has a value. 
<clears throat> it can be redeemed. So the unclean animal, that was my example, for instance, of a donkey, that unclean animal is judged by the priests, and the priests say, well, I think the donkey is worth this much. So let's say the donkey's worth a uh, hundred shekels, and then we're going to add another 20%. So 120 shekels, you could pay that amount and get it back. Okay, so there's the value of the thing plus an additional amount that is um, needed when the vow is paid. It costs them as much or more to buy the animal back than to just give the animal. In the next section of verses, starting in verse 14, we have vows regarding houses and land. <clears throat> so follow along with me. Verses 14 and 15 to start with. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. So similar to an unclean animal, a house is valued by the priests, then 20% is added if the person wishes to redeem it. Then verse 16 on down through 25. I was talking about dedicating land now. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, and when it says is his possession, that's specifically the tribal possession that God gave to each tribe, okay? Then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. Okay, so again, like we saw before when we talked about the year of Jubilee, everything's calculated in terms of that year. So if it's the year of Jubilee, and you're now dedicating land. Well, there's 50 years till the next, uh, till the next uh, year of Jubilee. So let's say the land was worth 50 shekels. I'm sure it's worth more than that, but let's say 50 shekels. It's a small field. It's, that's the valuation of it. It's 50 shekels. But if it's 10 years later, and there's only 40 years left till the year of Jubilee, then the, it would be valued at 40 shekels. Okay, and on, so on and so forth. If you do it the year before, then it would be one shekel, right? It's, it's based on the number of years left till the year of Jubilee because it's going to revert to its original ownership at that time. All right, so pick it up in, um, I think, verse 19. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price and it shall remain his. So it can be bought back just like these other things. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. Okay. So if a land is dedicated, the crops and the harvest is taken into account, like we explained, because the, the land reverts to its original ownership in the year of Jubilee. Um, so the number of years is considered. 
And again, the priests set the value of the land and then you add the 20%. But if the year of Jubilee comes and the owners do not redeem the land, then it becomes permanently given to the Lord, which means that the priests administer the land and the use of it. Okay? As we continue on, verses 26 to the end, we have kind of special cases. We have a variety of different things here. So jump in with me at verse 26. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep. It is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. Now we're going to talk further in a few moments about the idea of the firstborn. But for now, let's just note the basics. God has already earlier in his law said that the firstborn belongs to him. It's the firstborn male child. It's the firstborn of every animal. So automatically, they belong to God. And since they already belong to God, you can't give it to God. It would be like me coming into your house and taking some item off of your wall and handing it to you and saying, I want to give you this to show you how much I appreciate you. And you'd be like, it's already mine. And that's what God is saying. The firstborn already belongs to him. So you can't give him the firstborn because it's already his. Verse 28. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted which, who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. So here we're looking at things that have been devoted to God for destruction. Think about the story of Achan. When the Israelites conquered Jericho, do you remember what God's instructions were? Everything in the city is supposed to be destroyed. Why? It was the first city. Just like the firstborn belongs to the Lord, the first city belongs to the Lord. He says, this is mine. Don't take it from me. But what does Achan do? Achan takes some of the spoils of that battle for himself. And so Achan just like we see in the rest of the law, is put to death along with his family. And this, this was justice according to God's law. He was stealing from God. And because of this, you know, God gave the Israelites a defeat in their next battle. Well, this passage tells us that nothing that has been devoted to God for destruction can be redeemed. Remember the story of King Saul when he defeated King Agag. And Agag was captured and Saul was supposed to put him to death because he was under the harem, the ban, this devotion to destruction. But he didn't do it. He kept Agag alive. Well, Saul was sinning and the consequences of that sin went on for many years. Things devoted to God for destruction must be destroyed because that upholds God's justice and it states clearly God's ownership. God will not tolerate his justice being subverted forever. All right, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. 
One shall not differentiate between good or bad. Neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So tithes can be redeemed. It's part of the harvest or it's the 10th animal. Then it's valued by the priests. You add 20% and it can be redeemed. But if someone tries to cheat God by substituting a different animal, then both animals belong to God. So the idea here in terms of the 10th was as the animals are coming in, they would be put under a rod and that, you know, as they passed the rod, the shepherd, the owner would count them. And every 10th one was pulled aside and given to God. So if the 10th one happened to be one of your best, you couldn't like just grab the next one instead. God doesn't want to be cheated. And the point here is that God takes seriously his ownership of all things. We are to recognize his sovereignty and his ownership. We are to submit to it joyfully. We're not to fight against it. And then verse 34, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Again, we have this reminder that all of this was spoken by God on Mount Sinai. And the whole book is taking place at the foot of Mount Sinai and in the presence of God. Now, as we um, kind of continue talking about this this morning, there's two things that I want to share with you. The first is kind of a, a theological idea. And the second is a challenge as far as application. So the first part, this theological idea, is the understanding of the, the redemption and the firstborn. And this is a type of Christ. It's a picture for us of Christ. Redemption is an important idea in chapter 27. You heard it all through the chapter. Well, in the book of Leviticus, the word redeem only shows up in two chapters. Chapter 25, the year of Jubilee, and chapter 27. In chapter 25, it's in there 17 times. And in chapter 27, it's in there 12 times. It's a central idea for both of those chapters. So chapter 25, the year of Jubilee, is the release of debt, the gift of freedom, and that freedom flows from redemption. Then sandwiched in between, we have the call to obedience, blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. And then in chapter 27, the vows, and the, the redemption of vows. And the idea of the firstborn is closely connected to the idea of redemption. Now here's the history of it in the Bible. Let me just kind of give you this overview. First, God sent his judgment on Egypt when the Israelites were the slaves of the Egyptians. Technically, the slaves of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had disobeyed the Lord and refused to let the Israelites go. God had told Pharaoh, he said, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So God says, of all the peoples on the earth that I am going to call to be mine, the firstborn, the first group I am calling to myself is Israel. They are my firstborn son. And he says to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh refused. What did God do? God sent 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. The 10th and final plague was the death of the firstborn, as God had promised. 
Now, when the Lord came through the land, the firstborn son in every house was killed by the Lord. The firstborn represents the rest. So the firstborn son, the firstborn animal, the, the way the Bible refers to it is the first to open the womb, represents all the rest that will follow. So the death of the firstborn was symbolic of God's judgment on all of Egypt. Okay, second, God provided a way of escape for his people from this judgment. God told the Israelites to do what? Sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of your home. And then when God comes in judgment, he will see the blood and he will pass over that house. That's where we get our word Passover. Okay? He would see that a substitute had already died in the place of the firstborn. A representative had already died in the place of the firstborn of that home. So again, we have the picture of a representative who stands in the place of another. Just like the firstborn stands for all the others in the home, the lamb stands for the firstborn. And the redemption of the firstborn is symbolic of the redemption of the rest of the people too. Okay, so we have what happens to the firstborn in Egypt. We have what happens to the firstborn of Israel. And then the next part of the story is immediately after the Passover event, the Lord tells the Israelites that from this time forward, they are to dedicate the firstborn male to the Lord. And it's specifically to commemorate God's redemption of Israel in the Passover. Listen to how this instruction is given in Exodus chapter 13. I'm going to read for you verses 11 through 16. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem, I buy back. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." So all Israel is God's firstborn and they have been redeemed by him. That's why the people of Israel, when their firstborn son is born and belongs to God, they were to redeem the firstborn son. It's a picture of what God did for the people in Egypt. And then the tribe of Levi is designated as, by God to be the representatives of the rest of the people. 
And God says that they are to stand before God instead of the firstborn. So just like the firstborn belong to God, now the Levites are a representative of the firstborn. And so the Levites are dedicated to service to the Lord and they belong to him. It's symbolic of the fact that all Israel is to serve the Lord. Israel is not supposed to sit there. If you're from the tribe of Simeon, you're not supposed to say, well, the Levites serve the Lord. You know, they're dedicated to his service, so we don't need to worry about it. No, what they're doing is representative of what you are to do in the way that God has called you to do it. Same thing is true today. As part of the church, you don't look at the pastor and say, we pay the pastor to do the ministry. You say, I'm called to minister in the place that God has put me. I'm called in my own workplace and in my home and in my neighborhood to serve and to minister just like everyone else who's part of the body. Then when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is designated as the firstborn. He's God's firstborn. God has predestined us, Romans 8 says, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The name of our church, Icon, means image. We are being conformed to the image of God's son. And the point is, he's the firstborn and we are supposed to develop the family resemblance. We're supposed to look like brothers. We should resemble him. People should look at you and say, boy, you look a lot like your older brother Christ because of the way that you act. He's the firstborn among many brothers. He's our representative before God. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he was created, but he is the representative of creation. He's the first one, so to speak, to stand in the presence of God. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. So not only is he the firstborn of the creation, he's the firstborn of the new creation in the resurrection. He's preeminent in the creation and he's preeminent in the new creation. Everything centers on him. And Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, that we were redeemed, bought back, from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So both redemption and the concept of the firstborn tell us that God's people belong to him. We belong to him. And when we look back over what we've seen in the book of Leviticus, it's an appropriate place for us to land to think about what does this mean now for my life? And so I want to ask you a question. We talk about consecration, being committed to holy living in God's presence. Does what you've heard in Leviticus make a difference? When you see the holiness of God 
And when you see the, the law of God and his design for how you are to live, what's your choice? Leviticus 26 was obedience or disobedience. It's what Joshua says to the people. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether you're going to serve the gods of Egypt and all of the nonsense that we had back there, the evil way of life, or are you going to choose to serve the Lord? And over and over again, Scripture calls us to dedicate ourselves, to consecrate ourselves to serving the Lord. And it tells us that God takes seriously the commitments that we make to him. So this whole book has been about what it takes to live in God's presence. God's intention is to dwell with his people. But his people are sinful. There's a separation between God and his people because of sin. And that's why all of the sacrifices are necessary. But sacrifice has to be made in the way God says. The story of Nadab and Abihu illustrates the problem. Sinful people can't come into God's presence. None of us meet God's standard of perfection. And that means that none of us can come into his presence. We're separated from him with nothing that we could do to change that fact. But the Day of Atonement gives the solution. In the two goats of the Day of Atonement, we see what it takes to restore us to God's presence. One goat is sacrificed and its blood is brought into God's presence. That symbolically satisfies God's wrath. God's wrath against sin can only be satisfied by the shedding of blood. Because our very lives are forfeit when we sin. Just like Nadab and Abihu. But the blood of goats could never truly atone for sin. There must be something more. And the second goat symbolically takes the sins of the people on itself and carries those sins out into the wilderness, far away from God's presence. So together, those two goats form a picture that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus takes our sins to the grave, carrying them far away. And Jesus' blood is sacrificed for atonement for our sins. And his blood is a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. His blood can actually atone for sins because he's perfectly righteous, unblemished, like we talked about in our catechism question this morning, an infinite value. In Leviticus, after the Day of Atonement, the chapters that follow give the holiness code. How, God, how God's people who've been atoned for now, whose sins have been dealt with, are to live in his presence how to live holy lives. And then finally, the year of Jubilee comes and that gives the promise of the future where all debts will be canceled and all God's people will have true freedom and the promised inheritance. How should we respond to this? How should we respond once we see our predicament before God and once our sins have been atoned for when we have faith in Jesus when we look to him and we say there's nothing I can do to deal with my sins in God's presence but I look to Christ who's done it for me I trust him and once we see how we're supposed to live holy lives and once we see the promise of the future that is ours when we will be completely set free how should we respond to that? Well, Leviticus 26, we should choose obedience over disobedience. 
And here in chapter 27, we should consecrate our lives to God. We should commit to live holy before him. The vows of Leviticus 27 point to the proper response that God's people should have to the amazing, undeserved, gracious work of God on our behalf. Redeeming us, setting us free. So how about it? How has the message of Leviticus impacted you? Do you commit to live a holy life in God's presence? And I'm not just talking to adults. Kids, teens, this challenge is to you as well. Do you hear what God is saying about holiness? And do you commit to live in holiness before him? Not because... That will somehow gain you God's favor, but because he's already given you his favor. Not because it will earn you anything, but simply in response, out of gratitude for God's gracious gift of redemption. Everything about living in God's presence centers on Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to come into God's presence. Jesus atones for our sin. Jesus perfectly kept God's law and lived righteously. He takes our sins. He gives us his righteousness. Our firstborn elder brother who represents us before God and redeems us, who gives us freedom, who welcomes us into the presence of God. This book of Leviticus, it's not turned to very often today. The things that are contained in it, there's a level that's just culturally different, but there's another level. We just don't like what it says at times. It's foreign to our way of thinking. But what I hope you see is that the life that Leviticus paints, that picture of life in the presence of God, is a picture of what is truly true and beautiful and good. Think of the story of the Bible. On one end of the story, you have the Garden of Eden and the beauty and the goodness of what's there in the garden. On the other end of the story, you have the new heavens and the new earth and the beauty and the goodness that is there. And in between is the mess we've created and what God has done about it to restore us to his presence in an even greater beauty and goodness than what we started with at the beginning of the story. Every good story reflects that. Think of the, the Lord of the Rings. How does it begin? It begins in the Shire with this simple, beautiful, uncomplicated, basic life. And the whole story is this encroaching presence of evil and the difficulty and the battles that are fought against it. By the end of the story, 
you're restored back to that beautiful life and the way things are supposed to be. And Leviticus is painting a picture for us that is like that. Life in the presence of God. And the fact that we look down on the life that Leviticus pictures for us says a whole lot more about us and our culture than it does about Leviticus. We need to be changed, have our minds renewed after the image of God so that we think his thoughts after him, so that we see as beautiful and good what he says is beautiful and good. And I guess the question I would end with is, who will you be in the story? The role of hero is already taken. That's Jesus. He's the hero of the story. But every story has a variety of characters. There's the villains who choose the wrong side. There's those who start out on the wrong side, but switch to the right side. There's those who maybe exercise great courage and valor. There's some who are on the right side, but they shrink in fear and essentially disappear from the story. Who will you be in the story? Will you embrace the story that God is writing? Will you embrace the picture of life in God's presence that Leviticus gives us? Will you consecrate yourself? Will you dedicate yourself to live the way God has designed? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. We thank you for what you have told us about yourself in this book. We thank you for the picture of life that you have called us to, a life when our sins have been atoned for and you've called us to holy living in your presence. I pray that we would truly believe that the best place for us to be is in your presence, receiving that blessing, that we would not allow ourselves to live separated from you by sin, but that we would walk with you. You've made that possible because of Jesus, the redemption that he has provided for us. Would you, by your spirit, give us the courage to believe what you've said in your word and to walk with you in your presence day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.